for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. I want to begin a new series today. A series entitled United. Together for the Gospel. It's a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, as you're turning to the book of 1 Corinthians, let me just tell you very briefly about it to introduce it. It's an interesting letter written to an even more interesting congregation. Uh, You don't look at the people in Corinth and think, wow, great church. It just didn't happen. As a matter of fact, while it was one of Paul's most... um, prominent churches, it wasn't the church that he was probably, you know, held up as his model church, so to speak. The the church at Corinth was full of massive problems and multiple problems. And in the midst of all of their troubles, what Paul is going to say to them throughout the book is he's going to call them to unity. He's calling them to unity. Now, the book of Corinthians is laid out in much the same way that the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament is laid out. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians is sometimes called the Deuteronomy of the New Testament because it begins with a very strong, clear call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then about chapter 7, it does this. It splinters off in every direction fathomable. So what I want to tell you is this. Throughout this winter and spring season of our church... I'm going to have the opportunity to offend every one of you. I'm really excited about that. And I'll be offended myself in so many ways. Now, if you don't know me, you know that I say that lightheartedly. But I will say this. What I mean by that is that the gospel always offends our senses and sensibilities where our sinful propensities have taken root in us. And the gospel calls us out of our sin, calls us out of ourself, and points us to follow Jesus Christ. And so when I say offend, I mean that in the kindest, most pastoral, and most anticipating way. I hope you're excited about it as I am. Unity is what fuels God's people for kingdom mission in the world. The unity of the body of Christ among a local church cannot be substituted. And united in the gospel, it's not about getting along with others in the church, but it's about the church getting on and moving forward with God's mission in the world. That's what unity in the church is all about. When the church focuses, hear me, because so many come in looking just for, I need good community, I need good fellowship with people. But when the church makes its focus on good community without serving God's mission, what people want most from community can never be obtained, will never be experienced. 
There is no fellowship of the saints. There is no community among the congregation of the church that is absent of faithfulness and mission of God. And that's what God's word makes clear to us and what he will make clear to us throughout our study. For God grows and he strengthens the fellowship of the church in the midst of gospel mission, not absent or disconnected from it. So the church, even today, we face countless challenges that threaten to thwart our mission. And initially, 1 Corinthians will seem like it's about everything. I mean, you, you look at it overall and you think, wow, every conceivable topic will be addressed in some way, either directly or indirectly, in this book. And it seems like at times it has just a small or even no thread of commonality. But it's really about one thing, about one thing. How God's people are united in the gospel in any and all situation and or relationship. Now that's a, that's a tall order. That's a, that's a big idea for the book study. And so I, I want to begin today by talking about United and what it means and how it is. And what I want you to see today is that God's people are united in the gospel of Jesus Christ for kingdom impact in the world. And you go, what, what does this have to do with me and my needs? It has everything in the world to do with you, with each and every person. Because God unites us in the gospel of Jesus Christ for kingdom impact in the world. I want us to see four factors today in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. And, and due to time constraints, I'm not going to read every verse of chapter 1. I'll, I'll try my best to remember to help you as we flow along and I'll read a key verse from an area. But I want to look at four factors that we are in which we are united as the people of God in Jesus. And so let, let's go to the scriptures here in verse 1 and let's begin. I'm going to read just the first couple of verses here as we look at factor number 1. Verse 1 reads, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop there for just a moment. I want you to see this first factor in which we are united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the factor of our purpose of salvation. The purpose of our salvation. In so many ways, this is the first place that many go wrong in their relationship with Jesus. But the purpose of our salvation is simply this, that we are saved in Jesus to serve God's kingdom mission in the world. We are saved in Jesus to serve God's kingdom mission in the world. This stands in direct contrast to what some believe, that we are saved for God to serve my mission in this world. But the purpose of our salvation is that when God saves us, He brings us as His people and assigns to us 
the mission that he has given us in the world. And Paul begins his letter to the church at Corinth with this typical introduction. He identifies himself, the writer. He identifies the Corinthian congregation as the intended off, uh, audience. Excuse me, And then he offers this thanksgiving for the hearers. And so often in Paul's letters, we read over the first four or five verses just to kind of realize, yeah, I know what this is all about. But he says some important things to the Corinthian church that you and I need to understand for our identity as God's people in the world. These opening words provide helpful insight for us as the church today. The first truth that we see addresses the identity of Christians. Look what he says. To the church of God that is at Corinth. That could also be written to the church of God that is at Life Point. It's the church of God. And he makes this clear later on in verse 2 at the end when he says that, that they are together with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In other words, he's saying you're the local church, but you're part of the capital C church. And, and that's what he's drawing them to. But here's what he says about them in their identity as Christians. That you are sanctified in Christ Jesus and you are called to be saints together. You see, he addresses the church by proclaiming a truth with these two distinct phrases. First of all, sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word for sanctified is used in a couple of different ways in the scriptures. Uh, it's used for what we often think of the process of salvation where we are not yet perfected but are becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's what we call sanctification. But what he's talking about here is the other use of this word sanctified, which is a general term for salvation in general in other words he's saying that to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus the Greek word for sanctified is hagios it's the word holy now you have to set that up because most people in the church today don't see the title of holy over their life but God places it on his people not because we're worthy but because he is and what he's done. The term holy or sanctified or the term saints in the New Testament all derive from the same root word for holiness. And it is the word that Paul uses over and over again in the New Testament to identify the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, more than just a title, it states what is true about Christians. That when God saves a person by faith in Jesus Christ, He makes you holy. He makes you holy, not by personal righteousness, but by Jesus' righteousness placed upon you. Friends, that's the miracle of salvation today. It's the miracle of salvation we're going to unpack. The righteousness, or excuse me, the unrighteous made righteous by the righteous one becoming unrighteous for us. We've already read it in the scriptures. We've already sung it in our songs. But God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the miracle of salvation. When the scriptures calls you holy, do not doubt. But press in to trust and believe what God says about you is true. And seek to see it become more and more true of you. 
in the way you live out your faith. The second phrase that he joins with this, though, is what? Sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say? Called to be saints together. That's how he completes this truth with the second phrase. There's no option to choose between the two phrases. Which do you prefer to be? Rather, one and the same, they go together. They're both true, and they both must be included for the complete truth. You see, all who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, all who are saved in Him, are called to be saints together. This is so important, friends. Every recipient of God's salvation serves God's commissioning call. That's what he's saying. Because you are saved, you are sent. You are not sent because you're hyper-spiritual and you choose to go. You are sent because you are saved. You've been commissioned by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to understand how it is we live in this call. The way he says is that we are saints what? Together. Wow, it's colder than I thought today. We're saints together. Now you know when we get to this word, I'm going to spend some time on it, right? Christians live out God's call how? Together. Let me tell you a little bit about this word saints because it is from the same root word as sanctified. Holy. We are saints. This word is used 61 times interpreted saints in the New Testament. And every use is plural except for one. And the one use of this word that is not plural is speaking of each individual one of the plural use of the term. In other words, there's no singular for saint. It's saint. Hear this, friends. Christianity is distinctively personal, but it is never only individual. And in a day where relativity rules, the more individual you live out your Christianity, the further you walk from obedience in God's Word. It is deeply personal, but it's never only individual. Being in covenant as an active participant with a local church is a vital Biblical expression of Christianity. Friends, when God saves you in Jesus Christ, He makes you part of His people to serve His kingdom mission in the world. Then Paul goes on to actually give thanks for the Corinthian church. Listen, the more you study the book of 1 Corinthians, the more this part of the book will actually come almost comical for you. Paul's giving thanks for people that were likely the biggest problem and source of frustration in his life. But he gives thanks for them. Verse 4 says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's a great gospel application in this too. He gives thanks for them not because of who they are, but because of how great God is and how gracious he is to give grace even to these people, the Corinthians. You see, God is the one that motivates Paul's thanksgiving. 
Because of his grace in Christ Jesus, verse 4. Because the people at Corinth were enriched in speech and in knowledge, verse 5. Verse 6, he says, I I thank God because of the testimony about Christ that's been confirmed in you. You're messed up, but you're still the church of God. Right? Sometimes we don't think those two can cohabitate, can be together. But actually, they always go hand in hand. He thanks God for them because they're not lacking in any gift. And, 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 and he thanks God for them finally because none of these things originated with the Corinthian people, but originated with God. The Corinthians were neither great people nor a great church model. But friends, God is great and he is faithful and he is able. God's work in Jesus Christ motivates thanksgiving that returns as glory unto his name. You see, the first factor that we need to understand about being united as God's people is the very purpose of our salvation, that God has saved us to live together as the church in the world for his purposes. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth so you just kind of have an idea of where it was that this church existed. Corinth was a Roman colony down in the lower part of Greece. It was a very cosmopolitan city. It was a port city, so there was a lot of traffic in and out of it. But it was also a very important city because everyone in that area either flowed in or out of Corinth. It had a lot of traffic through it. It was an intellectually alert city. It was known for great philosophers who liked to wax eloquently. It was known to be materially prosperous. And, and even though some uh, many of the people in Corinth weren't materially prosperous, a large amount of prosperity flowed in and out of the city. But it was also known to be completely morally corrupt. As a matter of fact, it was so defined in this way that there was a pronounced tendency for the inhabitants to indulge desires of whatever sort. It's interesting to me that we think relativity started in our generation. But friends, relativity started in Genesis 3. When Eve looked at the apple and Adam did as well and said, this might be good for me. Maybe God didn't know what was best for me. And hence, relativity was birthed. It's not new to us, and we shouldn't be captivated by it. One historian records this about Corinth. The idea of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrendering self to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. These are the true Corinthian types. In the word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desire. Corinth was a city that celebrated her immorality. As a matter of fact, so much so that her reputation became immortalized by the term to Corinthianize, which basically meant to go to the devil. In other words, if I'm going to make an application for us, Corinth was the handbasket that many were riding in towards hell. You've heard the phrase, going to hell in a handbasket? Corinth was the handbasket. 
and they celebrated themselves for it. It had such a reputation for sexual vices that uh, uh, one of the historians of that day coined the phrase Corinthizo or to Corinthianize, which meant that to be a Corinthian was synonymous with committing fornication and every sexual idolatry. It's just the way we are, man. It's our city. It's the way we live. And that's the way they promoted themselves. It was thoroughly immoral in every way. But it was important for one main reason. Because so many people flowed in and out. It was a strategic city from which the gospel could radiate out to the surrounding districts. And anything that was preached in Corinth would be sure of a wide dissemination of people as they flowed in and out of the city. And you see, the problems and the immorality of the culture, hear me, are never too much for the gospel to be effective and the people to be used by God. Friends, that's what we must remember with this first factor of being united. That the purpose of our salvation is that we're saved in Jesus and sent to serve God's kingdom mission in the world and God will accomplish His mission. We're united in this. The second factor I want you to see today for how the church is united is this. It's the power of the gospel. We're not only united in the purpose of our salvation, but in the power of the gospel. We're united in gospel-centered perspective and conviction. In gospel-centered perspective and conviction. If you look at verse 10, he begins to say this. And let me read that for us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. United in the same mind and the same judgment. And so after he gives this gospel presentation and gospel identification of God's people, he moves now to the power of the gospel and he makes his appeal to the people to be united because of the gospel. He's appealing to them for agreement. Many had come to faith in the Corinthian church But more than the church having its influence in the world, the world was having its influence in the Corinthian church. One commentator said the biggest issue was simply that people weren't getting along. The conflicting values of diverse groups in the broader society had been carried over into the church as divisive issues. And Paul summons them to think instead As servants of the gospel. And he uses this phrase to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Demonstrating what the gospel does. And this is what it does. It unites Christians not because it makes us all alike. But because it makes us all like our master. The Lord Jesus. That's where our unity flows from. The gospel supersedes all worldly labels, all worldly statuses, and it makes us all servants under our one Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so we gladly lay down our worldly status that we might take up 
the name of the one in whom we are being made like Jesus Christ. The gospel unites in two areas, he says, in discernment and in conviction. The same mind, he says, that refers to one's perspective or to our point of view. This is so important because the gospel reverses what sin has done to us and it transforms us. It begins, Romans 12, 2, by transforming our mind so that we can discern God's perspective, right? Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, he writes to the Roman church, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might be able to know, to discern. Another, that you might be able to separate truth from error, clarity from cloudiness, question from determination. That's what it means to discern, to divide, to split, to get away from the clutter and to bring the clarity of Jesus Christ and his commandments and his word to our lives for obedience. And that's what the gospel does, that we might determine God's will, God's perspective, and that in so determining God's perspective, it might become our own. Be united in the same mind. Why? Because you've been chosen to be right? No, because we're all being united in the mind of Christ, which is ours by the Spirit of God. But he also says not only be united in your perspective or your discernment or your mind, but be united in your judgment. And this refers to thinking that leads to a decision or to a conviction. And so in other words, if we know God's will, then that naturally leads us to what that will would lead us in. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, the, the last letter he will write to uh, the Corinth. Corinthian church chapter 5 and verse 16 says this that before Christ we saw everything different but because of Christ we view everything different we view Jesus differently because of what he's done we view the world differently because of what he's done and we view people differently because of what he's done you see what he has done for us in saving us and in transforming our mind has affected the way we see and perceive and the way we make judgments about all of life and so the gospel transforms the mind to discern God's will and to hold convictions to walk in God's way you see what Paul is confronting here are real divisions Real divisions that still exist in our world today. The labels may look different in our world, but they are no different. In the Corinthian church, the wealthy people wanted nothing to do with the unwealthy. And if people were poor, the wealthy didn't want to associate with them. So much so that when we get to chapter 11 and we talk about the Lord's Supper, the wealthy people would get together and bring their wine and have a big party. And because the poor were so entertained with all the demands of life, like the, the really unimportant stuff like eating, you know, they wouldn't even wait on them to get there. And so they got a big party going on in the name of Christ. But these people who are entertained with the demands of life just for the sustenance of life, show up late and all the food's gone and all the wine's drunk. Why? Because they didn't want to associate with them. But you know what the world does? It justifies our labels. You know what the gospel does? It tears them down. 
There's no difference between the wealthy and the unwealthy at the foot of the cross. Some would claim to be Christians, but they would ignore blatant sin for personal comfort in the church. They knew that people in the church were living in open immorality of a kind that's almost inconceivable for us. And surely that we don't want to openly talk about. And so instead of being discomforted by confronting them who were walking in open disobedience to the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, they just kind of let it happen. Chapter 5, we'll get there. The hyper-spiritual. Oh, you know. The hyper-spiritual, right? They're the first at everything. Or the most at everything in a number of ways. They were using their gifts to justify looking down on others. That's what they were doing. They were like, you know, you're fine. You can stay. But don't come into our territory. Because, well, our gifts are, you know, better than yours. Right? I mean, that's how they thought. And so they looked down on other people. Not only because they had more gifts, but the kind of gifts that they had that were causing severe troubles in the church. You see, friends, Christians reject divisions that the world places upon people, the labels we wear, that we might live and that we might walk in the wisdom and in the power of God united together as the body of Christ. It's the defining testimony of the church. If you look in verse 13, Paul gives the key to understanding this unity, this being united. And he says this, is Christ divided? That's a question that should never leave the front of our hearts, especially when conflict arises. Is Christ divided? Then why are there divisions among us? If Christ is not divided and we are Christ's, we're walking in a way that does not honor Him. And that's the reason, the rationale that Paul makes. Christ is not divided, but when worldly values trump gospel, biblical values, the world rules the church and the church falsely claims that Jesus is divided. That becomes our testimony. When churches get in such splits, such arguments, that it bleeds out into the world. And listen, the world's never going to understand how the church is supposed to operate. And sometimes the world will throw the label on the church when the church is walking in obedience to Christ. There's nothing we can do about that. But what we can do is not live divided because Christ is not divided because when you and I fight and divide internally over worldly labels, we make one grand statement to the world that Christ himself is divided. Therefore, his people can fight and be okay with it. You see, friends, the greatest damage that we do to the gospel is when we bear a testimony that Christ is divided when we choose secondary worldly values to split and to argue over that get us off of mission instead of having the mind and the judgment of Christ bearing the perspective and the conviction that leads us to walk in Him even when we're different from one another. Diversity doesn't have to equal division. Do you get that? 
I am thankful for this. To a great extent, our church enjoys a lot of diversity. There is some diversity I wish we had more of. But diversity never equals division in the church. For the gospel brings diversity for greater glory. People bring labels that create division, that destroy glory. The power of the gospel unites the church by destroying worldly values and nurturing biblical values that guide spiritual discernment and Obedience. You see, the gospel unites the church in perspective and conviction to think and to act in accordance with God's will and way for his kingdom purpose. Listen, friends, when I start messing with you in the midst of the study of this book, what we need to begin to ask is this, am I living in the purpose for which God has saved me? Am I living with others in the power through which he has saved me? Is my mind set on Christ? Listen, not a one of us has the right perspective or judgment about any single factor of the world. But because of the Word of God and because of the Spirit of God, and because God is faithful, He brings us to be united in that. That second factor is a faith definition and understanding. When we talk about being gospel-centered as a church, that's what it means. That we put Christ at the front. And allow Him to do the transforming work in our hearts and in our minds. That He might lead us in the transformational work of the judgments. Of the ways in which we live and act in our life. The third factor for how the church is united is the testimony of the cross. Verse 18 to 31. Now he's identified these divisions and he's appealed for unity. And here he's going to give the foundation of unity, which is the testimony of the cross. The third factor is that Christ crucified demonstrates God's power to save. Listen, he's about to destroy every earthly, worldly value that they hold to. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? It is the power of God. For the word of the cross... It's foolishness. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God and the salvation. Amen. That's right. Friends, if you need a verse to memorize this week, go right there. Verse 18. Here's the crux of everything Paul is going to say in the book of 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, to me, Who's being saved is the power of God for me to trust in, for me to live in, for me to rest in, for me to breathe in, for me to walk in, for me to do whatever I'm going to do for me to remain in, in all things. That's how he begins this section. The word of the cross is really a phrase that is synonymous with the term gospel. It means God's message of salvation that took place on the cross. And what Paul does is he runs counter to everything that's happening in the world and has infiltrated the church. He points them to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is 
power. How can something be power to one that is foolishness to the other and vice versa? You see, the cross is simultaneously God's statement that shows where sin and self-love leads to. To the cruel, to the punishing, to the painful, and to the unjust death of the one who lives in sin. The cross is not because God just wanted to kill his son as some kind of perverse sickness that he had as a father. But the cross is a statement about what sin really does to each one of us when we let it rule in our lives. There was no other way than for Christ to die a cruel death on the cross. And what God said, it's the only way, but it is the way in which I will love you. That's the word of the cross. Can can the divisions of the people not be broken down when the death of Christ on the cross is beheld? That's what Paul is saying. Christians live daily in the word of the cross. When we move beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ, we move on to something completely other than Christianity altogether. There is no Christianity absent of the word of the cross. For at the cross, Christianity separates from all others. All others tell you, achieve, aspire, ascertain to the things that you might Rise to be God. Christianity says, stay put. God's already come to you. And he's loved you on the cross. He's here for you. All you must do is believe. God's done what no other other could conceive. The cross confounds and it destroys every structure of worldly power and wisdom. That's what Paul says. He asks these questions, where's the world's wisest philosophers to offer a greater explanation of how a man dying on the cross can make a difference for anyone? I mean, you want to talk about a crazy nutso story, start with the birth of Jesus and take someone to the cross and just go, wow, this sounds foolish, doesn't it? And it is, except by faith when it's received. Becomes known as the power of God. God reveals in the cross his sovereign plan over life that humanity's best has not yet conceived of. You see, Christians testify to God's wisdom in the cross. That's what he says, the wisdom and the power. And he says this, he says that we preach the power of the wisdom of the cross. That, That word for preach is not the act of preaching, but rather the content of proclamation. It's the message of a crucified Messiah. It's a God that's come to you. It's a God that died your death. It's a God that bore your sin and bore your shame that you wouldn't have to bear it any longer. That you could take his righteousness and you could live the life that only he can give. That's the message of the cross. It's the word. It's the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ through which every worldly value and wisdom and power is completely demolished and torn down and leaves the wisest and the most eloquent speechless. What the world scoffs at is foolish. Christians testify to faithfulness in God's sovereignty. You see, in the cross, God says, you could never find me, you could never save yourself, and you could never create a better way, but you don't have to. I've come to you to save you. God brings salvation through the very measure and the means that the world scoffs at as foolish, the cross of Christ. You see, death is final to humanity, so they dare not jack with it, but it's not final to God. Death is no match for God. 
That's what the cross screams at us about. God levels humanity's lofty intellect and high constructs in the gospel. And the big bang of humanity's power, God just fizzles like a dead firecracker in light of the cross. For the cross is God's declaration in death that I am and there is no other. For the world's idols demand more. You're going to have to do one more thing. You're going to have to do something else. They clamor to make God like one of us. But when religion loses its luster, and it always inevitably does, the religious demand a sign to return the all, to return the interest, and to validate their ritual. That's what he said, the Jews demand a sign. Why? Because religion just loses its luster, friends. I can go through this routine time and time again, but it doesn't do the same thing for me every time Religion always needs a big splash to motivate external conformity. Why do you think there's so many churches today that are caught up in creativity craze? And it's all about the performance. It's all about the production. It's all about what we can do to put on a show for you. Come and be amazed. And every week's got to be better than the last. Not only religion, but friends... When worldly wisdom fractures and it loses its command of the mind, a superior argument must be sought in order to sustain the chatter, the talk. That's what he says. Jews demand a sign. Greeks, they need a more ascended intellect. You see, friends, hedonism and atheism and humanism aspire Always to the next level. Why? Because the last level proved insufficient for what they were looking for. That's why. That's why. An elated pleasure, an elevated argument, or a high accomplishment because hope rests in their pleasure. Hope rests in their philosophy. Hope rests in their performance. You see, what idols do is they create a never-ending demand for more to create the illusion of real life, but they don't give real life. Where does real life come from? It comes from the cross where death was destroyed for you and I. I've told this time and time again, but uh, as a 21-year-old, I'd been a Christian for five years, and my grandmother passed away after about four months of fighting pancreatic cancer where it just seized her body and very quickly took her from being healthy at the age of 86, and, and we buried her in August of that year. And I mean, it happened so quick, we just we were like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? And I remember uh, the Lord just speaking to me during that time as I was working throughout the summer, and, and, and as I watched and would visit with her and and, and watch just the cancer just take her body and her life from her. And I remember going, God, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why, why are you letting this life that, that, that I know she's old, you know? I mean, I, I know that, that we die, at the, but it's not time yet. I mean, I would just cry out to God. And at her funeral, I had been asked up by her in her will to sing. And so I sang this very simple hymn, Because He Lives. I didn't want to sing it because I didn't want to stand in front of people and sing. And I did that almost every week at that time in my ministry. And I just didn't care to do it because, I, I man, I just, I just didn't want to do it. But try saying no to your grandmother at her funeral. That I really was not going to do. 
So I stood up, and here's what I said. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty tomb is there to prove my Savior lives. And I, I don't really know what was going on in the room at the moment I was singing. Because my head was spinning. And I just said, it makes sense. Because he lives, the verse says, the chorus, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. And life is worth the living. Because he lives. In that moment, in that moment, God took the head of the animal of death and went and separated and crushed it in my heart. From that moment, I've never had the fear. Now, I don't pursue it. Death, that is. Intentionally, outside of my own redneck propensities. But from that moment forth, there was a fear in my heart that has no longer been present. Why? Because of the word of the cross. Because of the word of the cross. God reveals His power and His wisdom in our helpless moment. And the word of the cross is God's revelation to us in our sin that He alone saves. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ crucified is the wisdom and the power of God that completely dismantles every argument and structure of worldliness that dare competes with him. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our salvation. And he is our only redemption. Let me get quickly to the fourth factor. The fourth factor that unites us. It's not only the purpose of our salvation. It's not only the power of the gospel to unite us. It's not only the testimony of the cross in which we are saved. But it is a reliance upon the Spirit's power. Holy Spirit empowers our message of God's power to save. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Paul concludes this first section with an, uh, a kind of a philosophy of why he preached the way he did. You see, everything that was infiltrating the Corinthian church was uh, the things that had infiltrated the city, like great arguments and great philosophers and those who loved to be apologists for the world's causes. And so the church was divided over the leadership. And he says, you know, some of you want to follow Paul and some of you want to follow Apollos and you want to follow this leader and that leader. He says, Christ is not divided. And the message of Jesus Christ crucified for sin and the Holy Spirit power saves when the gospel is preached and shared, not in the way it is preached and shared. And what he says is this, when the gospel is preached, the Spirit is empowering the work. He empowers the message for the gospel is the fuel that flames the Spirit's power to work in a person's heart and life. 
The Holy Spirit empowers the messenger for he sources every gift in gospel ministry, whether it's believing, if your gift is the gift of faith, whether your gift is the gift of administration or the gift of teaching or the gift of prophesying or the gift of preaching, whatever it is, the Spirit is empowering the messenger for the gospel to be proclaimed. You don't have to hold a special position to be sharing the gospel for the Spirit clothes every believer and empowers every believer to be a faithful witness and faithful witness is not about the eloquence of the messenger's speech but the submission and the willingness of the messenger's heart to speak and to serve God's mission and listen to this the Holy Spirit empowers the hearer the message the messenger and the hearer that's what he says it's the only message hear me the gospel is the only message that every time it's preached it's an inside job it's an inside job God's in you, working in you. And you're either receiving him or rejecting him right now in what he's saying to you. What is it? What is it? For it's by the power of the Spirit that people come into a saving knowledge of Jesus. And the Spirit works in every hearer to receive the gospel by faith. Is he working in you today? As the worship team returns, Let me ask us to prepare our hearts to respond in faithfulness to what the Lord is doing. The gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, it's the most glorious news proclaimed to all creation. It is hope for us to hold forth. It is light to pierce the darkest night. It is truth to unravel the most twisted deceit. It is testimony to share with every person. It is love to satisfy the soul's most powerful longing. It is wisdom to make straight the most crooked and confusing of relationships and situations. And it is power that brings us into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit. Will you receive it today? Where God is speaking to you, where the Spirit of God is working in you, where the Spirit of God is identifying those areas of your life where you're not walking in faithful obedience to Christ. We're not living in what in the way in which you know Christ's commandments have called you to live. Will you, will you trust? Let, let the power of God by the word of the cross bring you into unity with his people to walk faithfully in obedience, to live in the mission that he has for us. For God saves his people to serve his kingdom mission does that by the power of the cross. Let me pray for us and we'll respond to the Lord. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Lord, such a powerful word this morning in 1 Corinthians, but even more so, God, the one in whom it points us to, the one who is the word, the one of who the word of the cross speaks of, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, let there be nothing in our hearts and in our lives today that would distract us or deter us from trusting in Him and in Him alone completely. 